All right, everyone, welcome back to another weekly roundup edition of On the Margin. I am joined, as always, by my bombastic co-host, Mr. Mark Yusko. I'm giving you bombastic because I saw you in person this week. We did a live one of these bad boys, and bombastic, I think, is the appropriate word. It was, How are you, my friend? It was awesome. No, it was awesome. Mm-hmm. I, I'm still kind of on a little high from, you know, one, just being all together, two, literally doing a, a roundup live with yeah. you know, two of my faves, Dan and, and Bill. And... It was awesome. It was, it was awesome. And, and it's like, as, as good as it is for us to do this together. And, and, and I love it when you're live and you can interact with the audience and you, know, you get some, some wolf whistles and hoots and, and a chuckle here and there, not as many chuckles as I would like. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> all right. So we got it. We got to start. You know, I did, I did the sock reveal on stage. I'm going to do the sock reveal this morning. And by the way, the, the orange pants are back. Fall is in the air. So, mm. but this morning I have the Genesis block socks. Nice. So Chancellor on the verge of a second bailout for banks. God, what a great pair of socks. And it is, it is so appropriate today on quad witching on the morning that FedEx has declared that we're entering a global recession. Forget the U.S., a global recession. Markets are cratering. Uh, I shouldn't say cratering. Um, the 1030 is almost inverted. We are four basis points away from a 1030 inversion. And and what's the significance of that particular inversion, just for listeners? Well, the, the, you know, people talk about the twos and tens and the fives. And, I always focus at at the 1030 because the 30 year is an indicator of the market that the Fed really can't control. Right? It's an indicator of health of or the the market's expectation of the health of of an economy. And and when that's rising, people are thinking the future is going to be better, right? It's 30 years out. Um the 10 year to me really is a is a almost um, reflection of the the T-bill and, and, and T-note yield because it's so inextricably linked to financial products today. So, you know, you, you, you change the, the overnight rate and boom, the 10-year moves up. And so they can raise the 10 by raising short rates. But when that 30-year doesn't raise the same way and stay with a positive slope, which is what capitalism requires, uh, and you start to roll down, it, it can get ugly. So, you know, I, I, I'm not sure we're on the verge of a second global financial crisis. I, I, I really don't think we're, we're that close. But I, I do think, and we talked about this, that, that we're just half a policy error away you know, we've already made a couple of policy errors and it doesn't take much more to push us into a, a really bad state. Mm-hmm. Well, we've got some we've got some news uh, in the world that we had the Ethereum merge uh, happen this week, uh, which we got yeah. to talk about. Uh, there was a little birdie. Uh, so as you and I were speaking at DAS, um, Mike Novogratz was speaking at SALT and announced on stage that a little birdie told him that uh, Fidelity might be rolling out Bitcoin into their retail brokerage segment, which is I think an absolutely hysterical way of doing that. I don't know if that was just like a fun misspeak or some sort of psyop, but like. <laughs> psyop, definitely so, psyop. Look, no, yeah. I mean. That can't happen by accident, Novo, right? Novo is one of the most unique people I know. And mm-hmm. I'm sure he was wearing his floral jacket and um, he, he's he's a unique, unique guy. And yeah. uh, no filter. So no. uh, if if he tells you something, it's true. I mean, he's not, yeah. he's not making stuff up. So the psyop would be coming from Fidelity kind of saying, you know, if we tell Novo, he'll tell everybody. Mm. <laughs> and I so, mean that with great love, Mike, if you happen to see this. Cause I love, I love, yeah, he's, 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 he's honestly, he's a, um, he's really helped push our face, our space forward. Uh, but I want to start with the macro. So we're going to get into those stories later, but I want to start with the macro because I guess I have felt, uh, the emotion that I have felt recently is confusion. Um, uh, because you know, it seems like enormous economic contraction, right? Every forward indicator is pointing down. The Fed is talking about record rate uh, increases, and they're not just blustering here, right? Like it looks like they're actually 
going to do it. So we haven't seen this amount of liquidity getting withdrawn from markets at the same time that the Fed is tightening, at the same time that the economy is slowing down. But then you're kind of looking at it and it's like, where's the carnage? And I, I think uh, one of, you know, the reason why you and I keep hammering, right, on the labor market, right, unemployment and housing is because those are going to be two of the things that the Fed is deeply looking at. And those things aren't really, they're starting to be signs, but they're like, starting. Yeah, but yeah, starting to be. Yeah. But the labor market down. is one. Yeah. The, those, the, the, the big items, right, the big, mm. the big, big items. Uh, housing in particular is is really sticky down. I mean, interest rates are sticky down too. Um, and the, the, can you the, explain that? What is sticky down? Sticky down just means when when numbers go up, they tend to go up pretty quickly, right? And mostly because most of the data that we look at, economic data, is lagging, right? You're looking at the past. You have to wait for it, and and so it, it has this this, you know, kind of rapid rise to it. But then when it starts to turn down, again, there's the lag effect. So it, it just takes on and people don't people don't like falling things, right? So they they resist and they try to pass policies to to uh, avoid that. So um, any, any, you know, whether it's interest rate, interest rates, housing prices, um, corporate profits, they're just, they're just, people fudge the numbers, I guess, until they can't. And then you get, you know, the bottom dropping out. So it's that, you know, don't want to go down, don't want to go down, don't want to go down because that means weakness. So geez, it's, it's pretty bad. And then everyone seems surprised when it actually happens. That's the part that I always, I always find interesting. Yeah. Well, you know, I was listening to uh, this random podcast this week, and this guy was describing uh, this period back in 2008, um, where there was kind of this, you know, there was an initial panic, right, going into basically March of 2008. But then it was kind of this, like, calm period, right, in between March and September, right, which yep. is when you started to get, uh, you know, people started to get worried about Lehman, and then, of course, Lehman happened. Um but it was funny. It was just like, you know, you think of you think back in time of, you know, the great financial crisis being one thing, but it was actually kind of this drawn out, uh, you know, there was like an initial front and then this long eye of the storm type period. And then everything really. Well, Bear Stearns happened right. and and JP Morgan, you know, got to buy it. I mean, I still love, I love, hate how that happens, right? Is mm. one all these deals, right, that you always see, these big mergers or big enough, that always happen on Sunday night. Mm. Why? Why do I happen on Sunday night? Well, there's the Council on Economic Stability that meets every Sunday uh, evening, and it's, you know, the chairman of the Federal Reserve, the head of the New York Fed, uh, and the head of the big four banks. So Jamie Dimon and Bank of America and, and Citi and, and these, you know, six pale stale males get together and they, they determine the fate of the world. And so if you go back to that, that period in February, um, you know, bear basically was done, right? They were basically bankrupt and the stock was, was cratering. And I think it hit like two bucks or something like that. I can't remember. Um, exactly. But then, you know, Jamie announces on Sunday night for Monday morning that they're taking it over. Right at, at at you know ten dollars, which was better than than the two, but still a, a fraction of the value. Um, and bottom line was you know they got that the real estate for basically nothing and and all this good stuff. But um, oh, and then they got all their their debt forgiven by the you know Hank Paulson and his crony. So, but that it was all taken care of in February. Well, but then to your point, other stuff started to 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 have have cracks. And my favorite part of the story was if you go back to the September October period. And again, I don't know if I have dates exactly right, but you know the chart you have on the left here that shows initial jobless claims looks very much like the chart of CDS for banks. So huh. bank CDS. Yeah. Going down, 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 almost to zero. And then in February, it started going up. 
And, you know, literally from like 11 basis points, I think you could buy CDS on AIG and, and you know, uh, Goldman Sachs and stuff for, for like 11 basis points. And suddenly we're at 500 basis points. And 500 basis points is, is, is basically just saying you're done, right? You are out of business as an institution. And uh, so suddenly the, the dominoes start tumbling. You know, I live in North Carolina, which was, you know, second biggest banking capital in the world and just got eviscerated. I mean, Wachovia, done. Um, uh, First Union, done. Uh, and, you know, John Mack, right? Uh, Morgan Stanley guy is a good um, North Carolina guy. And the funny part of this story is, you know, it's a long story, but so you had all these banks being bought. Well, who was buying them? Well, Goldman Sachs and, and JP Morgan. Well, why did they get to buy them all? So, uh, you know, Wachovia goes down, well, our, uh, First Union goes down and, you know, all the Goldman people are moving down to North Carolina and taking over and moving the home office back to New York. And people were very sad. Well, uh, then there was the day, I wish I could remember the exact day, but it was like late September, like you said. And Morgan Stanley's CDS hit the magic like 500 and it was over. And so they announced on a Sunday night um, that Goldman was going to take them over and that was going to solve everything. And True story. This is amazing. John Mack was like, NFW, not working for Goldman guys, just not happening. Literally got on the private jet. And I know this as fact because a guy, a friend of mine, who's a Notre Dame guy, who's actually now big into crypto, was his bag man. I mean, literally was on the plane with him. They flew to Tokyo, flew to Tokyo, woke up the chairman of, uh, um, SMFG, and he hand wrote them a check for $6 billion. They carried the check back, deposited it, and said, to you, Goldman, we are not going to be part of Goldman. And they bought 20% of the firm, which turned into a lot of money, and Japanese bank made money, and, and John Mack got to stay in charge, and and uh, they didn't go out of business. Then they were made national banks and, and the rest is history. And now, and, and then they got bailed out and which is why I'm wearing the socks, right? <laughs> so it all fits together and I didn't even know we were gonna talk about this. No, no, it's, it's I actually love that, that piece of history because literally, I mean, what bigger indictment could there be of the modern financial apparatus that you needed to write a paper check, right? When it yes! all went to shit, yes! you had to fly. You yes. have to fly in a plane and Halfway get a piece of paper. So, yes. you know. No, that's so on. amazing. Oh, my God. Yeah. That is that. That is absolutely – I didn't even think about that part of it. That actually blew my mind. I mean, when I was – I mean, that won't even make sense. That conce- that sentence, that story won't even make sense to kids that are being born today. Yeah. I'm just going to say. But the reason, the reason we've got here, uh, initial jobless claims, and then I'm going to show – and by the way, you were right about – it looks like – Looks like you're going to be right, Mark, about CPI because we've got energy coming down. And I don't know if you've seen recent charts um, for Joe Biden's approval rating, but it, you know, he was like bottoming out around low 30s, and now he's back up. Uh, you know, surprisingly, gas the price will of gasoline. be sub three dollars by the election. Mark yeah. my words, gas will be sub three dollars, and he will be touting how he saved everything, and everyone should vote for us incredible Democrats and gas will be sub $3. Well, it's, it's looking like that's the case. I mean, this is, this was the CPI print that came in, uh, for August. It was 8.3. It was hotter than, it was hotter than people thought basically in, uh, in a lot of the core sectors. Yeah. Sticky down. Uh, and they broke it out, you know, core, I think is the thing that people were paying quite a bit of attention to that came in at over a six handle at 6.1, I believe looking at this chart. So, uh, you know, people were concerned. Markets reacted, right? I mean, the Nasdaq, you know, was down, you know, over four percent that day. Uh, and you know, I think there were. I think what people were hoping for was this nice, clean narrative that you know we've made it through the worst of things. And I think if we saw two, you know, sustained months of deceleration, then that would be good. But that's not what we saw. Um, and well, we the did. Reason why it just didn't decelerate as fast as people do because people can't do math. And and it's mm. just it's just amazing. So you know, you look at this. 
and the the green bar the energy piece is is going down hard right it's mm. it's down half over the last two months and that red bar is down half uh, it's half as big over the last five six months and a big piece of that is used car prices which have now gone negative right so so they they spiked they rolled over we had the largest decline ever and now they've actually gone negative and um housing prices are about to go negative so the owner's equivalent rent portion of this again which is just a manipulation it's the rent you charge yourself to rent your house from yourself which by the way you'd never change right if you rented from yourself you would never change that right how um how long does that take to show up in the data like how, oh, how long is the lag in between nine, 12 months? Prices? Easy, yeah. easy. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. Right. I, again, I should know the precise answer, but like all, you know, 85% of statistics are made up on the spot. So I'll make that one up too. So nine to 12 months. Yeah. That, that, that's what my curiosity is. Uh, because I mean, if, that, if that's the really sticky part of, of CPI and there's a nine to 12 month lag there, then, you know, I, I mean, I don't see how we're going to, in the point, you know, the, one of the bigger takeaways that I had um, for you and my talk with with Dan and Bill, which we'll, we'll air on, on this show, by the way, because it was it was great uh, for listeners, but is that the Fed is driving in the rearview mirror. And the reason why we're looking at CPI and then, you know, c- uh, jobless claims, there's continuing claims as well, which the Fed pays attention to. But basically, you know, the unemployment market and CPI is, is really what the Fed is looking at. The point is, those are both lagging indicators of what's actually going on it's causing the Fed basically to be behind the eight ball and they're getting whipsawed both ways here. Totally manipulated. You know, we've talked about the birth death ratio, but we really haven't talked about is the total manipulation of the, the job pool, right? The labor mm. pool by basically when you turn 65, you're excluded. I'm like, well, what the hell are you talking about? Have you ever been to a Walmart? The people greeting you are older than 65. I, I got news mm. for you. And so you don't retire the day you turn 65, but they take you out of the labor force and then they get this labor force participation rate. And it just looks so good. And you look at the dark blue line on the left. Oh, my all time record. This is, you know, we got the president saying I've created more jobs than any president. And I love the press secretary said. I got to get this right. She said. 10,000 million jobs. We've created 10,000 million jobs. She actually said that. And like t- 10, 10 billion jobs. Really? Really? You, you do know that the population of the world is sub 8 billion. But but you created 10 billion jobs, right? I mean, that that might be the, the most inefficacious person I've ever seen. In a government job, and that's a big statement. She's she's horrible. I mean, horrible at her job. And and yet, I, I don't I don't understand. I shouldn't say that. That's not nice. But she's horrible. It seems it seems like you know there's it's just a recipe for volatility. Um, you know, there's there's not a lot of I mean, not that there ever is an enormous amount of certainty, but you know, you you also keep getting these surveys back from you know Bank of America does their manager uh, their survey of global fund managers and yeah, yeah it yeah. is more bearish you know the survey from this past week came back more bearish than it was you know heading into 2008 it basically peak panic of 2008 it's, it's pretty unbelievable the it, how dire i think professionals right people that do this for a living actually look at data and and this goes mm-hmm. remember this goes to what we've talked about in, in the past too about how about how people form beliefs most people mm-hmm. are given their belief media, parents, whatever. And then you cert, you seek data that supports that belief and you reject yeah. all data that goes against that belief. And I think that's what's yeah. happening now is people said, you know, we're the strongest economy in the world, right? Again, the president said, we're the strongest economy in the world. I'm like, not even close, but, but, but okay, you know, if you believe that, so then you're going to reject all data that goes against that. And you talk about these charts. These are amazing. Yeah. Well, the reason I, the reason I thought this one was interesting was, um, first of all, you know, we've kind of shown Fed funds futures curve and it, I, I like the way the daily shot does it because they, they'll do what the market was saying one week ago versus now. And it's just been, I mean, it's a pretty big jump 
uh, you know, one week ago versus now. And now you can actually see that this curve is pricing in, you know, Fed funds rate at just under four and a half percent in April of this coming year. And the reason I thought this was and, and, and the two year government bond is kind of responding, right? Like we've shown charts, right, that there's an intense degree of correlation, shall we say, in between Fed funds and the two year and the two year is just a, a one way rocket ship up. And the, re- the reason I think those numbers are sort of significant is that was kind of what you and I were talking about, or, you know, inflation moderating to over the span of a year, like about four or five percent, probably. Uh, mm-hmm. And, you know, Druckenmiller in, in this great interview that he gave a little while ago that I think we keep referencing with John Collison said that, you know, inflation has never been conquered without bringing Fed funds above inflation. And at where the, where the market is now pricing Fed funds and where the market thinks inflation is going to be, we're actually starting to see, it seemed even two months ago that those numbers were never going to come yeah, together. No, yeah, no, no chance of that. Yeah. Mm. But yeah, you're right. No, and, and, and it, it is kind of like that, that yield curve inversion that mm. you have to invert the numbers, right? You, you have mm. to get the liquidity provider to be at a level that actually restricts liquidity. Now, the, the question is timing, right? Mm. Restricting liquidity, totally logical, right? That's, I think, the real job of a central bank. I mean, stop all this nonsense of manipulating interest rates and let's just you know, move liquidity to enable some cyclicality in, in business because you know, we need boom times you know, for expansion and growth. And, and then we need some, some bust times to kind of get rid of the excesses and, and the bad stuff. You know, like, like summer and winter. Um, but I just, I, I worry that people don't have a handle, again, on history. Um, that, that history tells us if the economic activity is already contracting because of either things you said or did, and then you compound the problem by actually then sucking liquidity out. And it was so funny, you know, we, we did the thing on stage and, and you asked, you know, one final question, you know, let's look forward. And, uh, and everyone looked, you know, like, I don't want to go first. I don't want to go first. And so they pointed at me. So I thought, right, fine, I'll go first. And I said, well, you know, if you go back to the long-term cycle, you know, starting in 1840, and t- DTAPS is, he said, future, Mark. He's talking about 1840. I'm like, well, no, I'm setting the stage for uh, the future, which is like, this have- was actually my, it was my favorite moment of the entire panel because we're like, all right, everyone, we're like already over time. We got two minutes left. Like future, you know, what, what do you kind of think? You're like, well, going back to 1840, it was, just, it was so awesome. It's so funny. So you I know, continue. you know, I'm a taker of time, right? <laughs> time is, as my wife would say, I think time is elastic, that it, it kind of mm. morphs a little bit. Um, and yeah, that was a little bit rude, but, but 90 year cycle, 1840 policy error, garden variety recession into the depression, 1930 policy errors, multiple turn a garden variety recession into depression. 2020s. Yeah, maybe we're doing the same thing. So, you know, I, 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 at first I was like, I think this is going to be a mild recession a la 2001, and really not that big a deal, kind of skate through it, barring, you know, another 9-11 type thing, uh, which was really what exacerbated the depth of that recession uh, and caused a lot of the problems. And actually, that's not true. It it revealed, it was like the tide going out um, in in 2002. Uh, speaking of tide going out and see who's swimming naked, that, you know, embodies Warren Buffett. I actually saw Todd Combs uh, speak the other night at a big Notre Dame event, kind of at the same time uh, of DAS. So I missed the, the party. Um, wow. I mean, I, I, I knew he was probably an impressive guy and I'd heard good things and he's done a good job at Geico. And, but no, I mean, one of the best investment thinkers uh, I've, I've heard speak was really good. It was really good. Mm. I, uh, I, I was I was listening to his podcast that I keep showing called Acquired. Uh, there's a great it's a three part episode on the whole history of Berkshire Hathaway, about nine total hours on the history of Warren Buffett and 
Charlie Munger and yep. Berkshire Hathaway and how that whole model developed. And there was a guy, you know, they told the initial story of the Geico investment. Actually, he invested in Geico twice. Once yeah. when he was real young gun, when he was like 19 or 20 or something, trying to impress um, uh, Benjamin Graham. Ben Graham, yeah. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, he bought, he bought an enormous and sold it. And then, uh, and then Geico faltered. They had, they, they realized one of the largest losses on, uh, you know, auto insure, you know, basically at, at that time, uh, because yep. they, they, the way Geico started was they would insure funnily enough government employees because mm-hmm. there was a correlation in between the propensity to work at the government and basically being, you know, very, very, uh, safety oriented, right? Prudent. So they were, they were based, yeah, prudent, prudent. right. Um, then they, they just needed to grow faster than they, they, they basically maxed out that market and they started insuring people outside of government employees. They had faulty underwriting practices and they had to realize an enormous loss. And they brought in this guy, shoot, I'm blanking on his first name. His last name is Byrne. He's actually the father of Patrick Byrne, yeah. the CEO at Overstock. And the, this guy's turnaround story for Geico is one of my favorite Favorite turnaround stories I've ever, ever. What a bombastic, what a bombastic guy. He, you know, because he was running into different, they operated in a whole bunch of different states. And what they needed to do, you know, in, in the insurance industry, you can't just change the price on your consumers, nope. right? It's a nope. very highly regulated industry. So he had to basically go around and lobby state by state. Hey, we we, we had faulty underwriting practice. We're not going to change, you know, our, our pricing for our current consumers. But we got to change it going forward. And New Jersey was giving him an enormous amount of trouble, you know, the, this, 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 uh, and so he, he apparently, as, as the story goes, you know, he goes into the office and says, you have given me no choice, but to abandon the state of New Jersey slaps, you know, his insurance license down on the governor's desk, yep. sh- like shoots off fires. Everyone in the entire state pulls out of there immediately. So, and kind of left the governor at that time to deal with the wake of like, why did you just yeah. lose? Why did you just jobs? lose all these jobs? Yeah, it's unbelievable. I I love. I just love hearing those crazy turns. No, it's so, it's amazing. Uh, and the thing that that um, Ted said that I thought was was so interesting was, um, so he went to breakfast with Charlie. It was kind of his interview, and uh, Charlie asked him a simple question: What percentage of companies will be better five years from now? And I think the average person would say, oh, I don't know, half the companies, you know, probably be optimistic. You know, we're all optimistic people. He said, well, I didn't think about it, like 5%, maybe. And Charlie's like, okay, now you need to meet Warren. Um, and, and the answer is not even five. He said, mm-hmm. now that I've actually thought about the question rather than just reacting to it, it's one. It's one. Just think about that. Just you know, we, we talk about S-curves and parabolas and exponential growth. Think about the difference between, you think you got a top 5% management team, a top 5% company, and they're just not even that good. Because you got to get that that 1%, that, that Geico-esque kind of type of company. And what I think is interesting about that is, is let's apply that to the world of, of digital assets and crypto. If 1%, of the projects are going to be better five years from now than today. Oh, what does that mean for investing in them? What does it mean for portfolio management? What, it, what does it mean for like what we just saw, the merge, right? I mean, we talked about this and it was like, oh, it's going to $10,000 by the end of the year. Like, since a week ago, when we talked about pre-merge and post-merge down 15%. Now I'm not saying it's, that's proof of buy the rumor, sell the news, but Man, I, I don't know. Is is Ethereum better for this change? I don't know. I I don't know. I and I know I'm. You know, people are beating up on me and on Twitter that you know you just don't understand proof of stake and it's far superior to proof of work. And what about energy? I'm like, I don't know. I I don't think somebody tweeted that as of yesterday. You know, global electricity consumption was going to go down 0.2%. I don't think that actually happened. I, I think the ETH merge, I mean, I think the ETH miners just went to a different they switched. They just, went they just to switched and went to something else. Yeah. So they're still using yeah. the electricity. I mean, they didn't want to go out of business. And so I, I just, I don't think that's true. And, and proof of work is so important in my mind for 
establishing truth that I, I don't know. I'm is I think the big question is is Ethereum better today than it was two days ago? And I don't. Maybe maybe, maybe don't you can answer this for me. What what is the difference in between? concentration among validators and concentration among miners? Um, there is none. <laughs> there is, uh, yeah, that's, Come on. So that's, my, no, that's worse. my kind of it's thing. It's worse. It's worse. With miners, with miners, at least there's the chance that other miners could come online and diffuse the pool. With proof of stake, once I've accumulated all the assets, no one else can have them. So I think I think consolidation of validators far worse. But that that's just me. Now, I I'm not so concerned. Maybe I should be, but I'm not so concerned about you know, manipulation or or changing block data or whatever. Because I I always feel like that was one of the elegance, one of the elegant features of, of the design of, of digital assets was the incentives against a 51% attack are the moment you do a 51% attack, you lose all your value because everybody says, screw it, I'm out. But I guess in a proof of stake world, like in a proof of work world, it would cost you a lot of money to do a 51% attack successfully. In a proof of stake world, maybe it doesn't cost you as much, and maybe maybe you could get it's it maybe it, maybe it's like the kid. I can't remember. I wish I could remember which which project it was, but he figured out they'd gone to a DAO, and you just needed a simple majority of the votes to pass a proposal, and so he bought up. I mean, he's like a, I mean, he's like a kid, kid, like fourteen or fifteen years old, and he bought up. 13% or 11% whatever, whatever like whatever the the I think it was he some someone else had 11 and he got to 13 passed this proposal to do a super mint of a trillion tokens mm. and then he started selling them and and as the story goes which is in this book that Cam Harvey wrote he got a billion dollars like like real cash before mm. the protocol went to zero so i don't know i i hear you on i think Probably, I do sympathize with Lynn Alden's description of commodity-like versus equity-like. I think um, I think there probably is some truth to an amount of concentration among the existing validator set uh, in, in Ethereum. And but I but I think there's I, I see that decentralizing over a period of time. Remember, Bitcoin started earlier than Ethereum. It was extremely concentrated in the beginning. It's done a good job. Extremely. Of, I've done it. I don't understand. I I just don't find it. You know, people debating about this on Twitter. Why can't Bitcoin just be our proof of work money? And Ethereum is kind of this mix, this smart contract layer with a native currency. I kind of, I kind of viewed as a is a huge boon because we get to see two experiments run in real time with an enormous amount of benefits. And we'll see which one at the end of the day is what I find them both exciting in different ways. I like that exactly. Bitcoin exists, but here's another way that I would frame this as well. Maybe just from the perspective of someone who doesn't want to just own this, but I uh, own these assets, but I view my career as being in crypto as an industry. Mm -hmm. If you told me, hey, you have to pick one of these things. And by the way, you, you don't have to just own it, but you need to go work in that part ooh, of the industry. Ooh, I yeah. wouldn't, I wouldn't even have to think about it for a second. Wouldn't, it wouldn't even take me, it would take me less than a second to understand where I want to line up because, you know, on, on one I just don't. Yeah, I, I, I'm basically I think the way I'm coming down, I still own an enormous amount of Bitcoin. It's my biggest crypto holding by far. I feel the safest with it. I'm glad that it exists. But in terms of growth and opportunity, you know, you and I talked about and I built Bill brought this up on our panel, which I thought was a really good point. Mm -hmm. You can't use Bitcoin in crypto outside of just buying it and holding it on a centralized exchange, which is a big use case. We're going to talk about Fidelity, why that's such an important announcement that they're rolling out. But if you want to go past that, Ethereum has all this all this utility built into it, which means right now, and I know maybe there are some people listening, this doesn't seem like a lot of you, but you can buy NFTs, you can get leverage, you know, you can basically get yield on it by staking, you can use it in DeFi, you know, to, to get as a store of collateral, whatever. 
and it all integrates toolkit. seamlessly. It's the yeah. toolkit. And look, TCP IP, which we're using right now, yeah, you know, voice over internet protocol, it's the best. TCP IP is the best. I mean, it, it's, it's the base layer of the internet. It allows, again, I still don't understand, right? How the hell does my little metal and glass box take all these images and sounds and pack it, turn them into packets that go different directions on cables all over and it comes back together? And you look at me and I don't look, I mean, I may look funny, but I don't look like I'm split up <laughs> into pieces. So it's just so weird to me, but that isn't, what what drives the innovation in the internet? That's www dots creating web pages and creating programs and and then you got these middle layers, you know, file I mean uh, FTP to move files around and you know SMTP to to make an email transaction work. And so, same thing here is Bitcoin could could be the base layer of this internet of value. It is the I think the best store of value. But man, on top of that, we're going to have so many other tools. That was the thing I loved about DAS, you know, 1,300 or how many, I mean, some gazillion number of people. Congrats, Brad, bravo, by the way. Um, I mean, just incredible. And all those people could go do other stuff, have left other jobs at really great places. I met a whole bunch of them who said, I just left Goldman or I just left JP Morgan or I just left this or I just, that's amazing. So incredibly talented people, incredibly passionate people, all working on things beyond buying Bitcoin, putting it on a thumb drive and burying your backyard. I said, if that's all there, if that's all Bitcoin is, we got that. That's called gold. So yeah. All this other stuff. And you know my rant about I think Bitcoin should be deposited. I should it should be lent. I think and you know, fractional reserve banking is not an evil thing. The abuse of fractional reserve banking, which leads to the bailout on my socks, that is bad. But normal levels of leverage and rehypothecation are not evil. They are necessary for growth. And I, I will state this over and over. Look at every country that has a strong fractional reserve banking system. It's a great place to live. Look at places with crappy or non-existent fractional reserve banking systems. You don't want to live there. You don't want to drink no. the water. No, I'm with you on that. I let me, let me ask you this, because part of, I think the one of the values that I'm seeing in Web3 crypto is distribution. And there's this I love to listen to whenever he talks, Chuck Aker, and he kind of talks about the value of distribution. New industries get built off the back of distribution. Maybe one of the most apt analogies is the internet. People generally, unless you were Bill Gates or uh, Jeff Bezos, they weren't talking about the internet as distribution. It was this information highway people did. But really what I think many people implicitly kind of understood was an enormous amount of people are going to plug into this. And there was a great way to access a much larger community of people at a much cheaper price. And now we intuitively understand it because we got Google and Facebook and it reaches this mm -hmm. enormous audience of people. If, But I, I think probably one of the advantages of Web3 is actually distribution as well. And the yeah. strategy thus far for the most successful platforms, which are layer ones, Bitcoin, Ethereum, Solana, Cosmos, whatever, has been you start, you know, you issue your tokens, you find a way to get it into retail hands, you make that token go up, and you create these evangelists for it. So I think an enormous part of, and Antonio, the founder of DYDX kind of talked about this, and now maybe that's not appropriate anymore, but certainly that's been the use case so far. I think these platforms depend on, because they aren't centralized companies, evangelists to go out and tell the story and invite more people in. Yeah. Yeah. If you had to score, do a scorecard of the Ethereum community and, their, and the types of people and their ability to attract talent versus the Bitcoin community and their ability to attract new talent, how would you score that? Oh, wow. That is like A++ question. Thank you, sir. In fact, I'm going to compliment you for another couple minutes on how great that question is so I can actually think about an answer. Um, and that's why I, love, I just love doing this because you just ask the best questions. And... In the absence of good questions, we just blather on about, about data, which is not really interesting. Um, 
God, that's such a good question. I, I give you a thought. No, no, no. It's, it's, no, it's, it's, it, no, it's such a good question. So here's, here's, no, it's so funny. So when, um, I think I've told people this, but you know, I got media training one time, right? So, you know, do TV. I'm like going to do Maria's show on Monday morning and at Odark 30. And so the guy sits me down, just asks me a question. I started answering. He says, what are you doing? I'm like, I don't, I don't know. I, I'm answering your question. He says, you never, ever answer the question. You deflect and redirect and talk about what you want to talk about. Don't answer the question. I said, no, I'm, I'm a dutiful firstborn. I always answer the question. You ask me a question, I will give you an answer, even if it's probably not prudent to answer. But so I'm not going to deflect and redirect as I was taught. I, I will answer, which is, I think it's bifurcated. I think there's incredible talent in the ETH ecosystem and lots of scammers. And, and whereas I think in Bitcoin, well, Bitcoin has its share of scammers too, but I feel like Bitcoin's more clustered around talent, but it's more homogeneous. I think in ETH, there's a, a wider swath of talent, less homogeneous, people doing different things, different, different backgrounds, different perspectives. They probably both have this element of, of the scammers. And that's just because anywhere there's money, scammers are going to come. So maybe I'll just use that word. More homogeneous, less, more heterogeneous, equivalent in... I'm going to make some people pissed. Um, I... I I think it's a leading question, but but I'll 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 take the bait and I'll go. With it. I I think overall, the people I've met, I talked to a CEO yesterday who's building this amazing thing on on ETH around sports and community. Um, just like, like I want to work for you. I mean, just really impressive guy. Um, and I I think there's more entrepreneur slash builder or buildlers, buildlers, um, B-U-I-D-L-R-E-R. Um, so that's a really long answer, Michael, but it's such a good question. I had to really think about it. I think I would actually bifurcate it by the the community that you ask that question to. And what I mean by that is maybe we can segue into, I think Bitcoin's path, their surest thing, their, the, the way that Bitcoin can be successful is ironically to be adopted by the world that Bitcoin professes to hate, which is the current banking system. I, I, I think that's how they have to win because you basically, I think the Bitcoin's big advantage is no one's accusing it of being a security. You, there's no founder, there's no team, even Gary Gensler himself, you know, can't can't call it a security. So I think in that sense, Bitcoin has an advantage because no reg it, it seems the safest from not being labeled a security to the existing banking system. It's also been the one that's around the longest. It has the most Lindy effects. So if you're going to offer crypto products mm -hmm. and your the likes of Fidelity, it seems like you're going to start with Bitcoin. The in terms of long-term tech and the ability to attract entrepreneurs and kind of tech-focused people, I don't think it's a super controversial thing to say. ETH's got that one, you know, an order of magnitude over Bitcoin. If it hasn't flipped already, it's certainly trending that direction. And no, that's fine. just, that's, sure that's already, fine. I think they've already, that yeah. battle's already been fought and, and decided. It doesn't mean it can't flip back, but it's definitely flipped. And, and I think that's, that's the difference, right? Is, well, well, Lightning. There's a couple handfuls of incredibly smart, motivated, talented, passionate people working on building Lightning. And Lightning applications hadn't scaled, right? ETH has scaled in many different places. NFTs and, and others. And there are NFTs on Bitcoin. 
like some of the original, like, like they have NFT archaeologists. I love this. They go back and they try to find the original stuff that may have value, but that's literally like digging up dinosaur bones. And so they're valuable, but there's not very many of them. But it's, I think it's also this, this, um, what's the word? Not mantra, but this, this uh, ethos about never change on the BTC side and always change, be willing to change on the, on the East side. And that's not a hundred percent because Bitcoin has made small changes, but, but there's this, we can't change this and this and this. Fine. Fine. I, I think some consistency is good, but I think it's a feature. I think it's yeah. a feature of the Bitcoin ecosystem. Yeah. I, again, I, these, you know, people here, I, I felt, especially in modern day, I feel like you can't even use specific, you can say things like America feels divided. And we'll say, yes, absolutely. And then you use examples about what people are divided about. And they stop hearing that your point is that people are divided over these issues. And you're like, well, do you agree with me on this? And the reason I'm glad we're having this nuanced talk, because I just don't view any of this stuff as being mutually exclusive. I don't think anything is one bad or one good. I I think it's very positive. You know what? The one thing I will say, and sorry, I want to give you a chance to respond to this too. The ESG narrative, if you look at the way this was covered, or ETH's shift to proof of stake in mainstream media, all about energy. Really, the, the interesting thing here is centralization and flows and the inflationary rate of Ethereum. Ethereum basically has a new business model, in my opinion. That's what's interesting. But instead, it's it's energy. And, and it does seem like the ESG thing is not going away. And that will probably affect. I, I think it, if ETH starts winning institutional allocations over Bitcoin because of this ESG energy yeah, saver narrative green you know look that's a tough it's, thing to it's so it's such nonsense right I mean, it's such nonsense right I mean, we, we've got all the stats right tumble dryers more electricity okay we're going to outlaw tumble dryers we're all going to wear wet clothes i mean fine whatever but you know flying on airplanes way worse for the environment i mean just, just orders of magnitude worse um so i'm not gonna stop flying on airplanes you know, it's really hard to walk to DAS. It, it would have taken me a long time. Um, so I, I, I do think, though, that the, the centralization thing, and it's a long, longer conversation for another day, but the centralization thing is, is real, right? The hating the old... And and the you know the anarchist origins right the crypto anarchist manifesto in 1988 Tim May God rest his soul laid out all of what was going to happen it's amazing if you haven't read it people should read it it's only a couple pages um, I, I posted it last week as weekend reading and it was so good except no one cared because he was an anarchist and he lived up in the mountains and he, he had no friends and so you didn't influence people so you. you Anarchists, we don't want anarchy. What we want is is improvement, societal improvement. You know, I don't want revolution. I want evolution. So I think this hate, hate, hate is bad. But to say proof of stake enables the same centralization, concentration, like the four big banks to control everything yeah, that that's not a that's not a that's not a a wrong assertion, and it's not a wrong concern. And while it's not exactly right because you know Coinbase is listed as one, but they have sixty six million different you know owners and all that good stuff. But I do I do think the golden rule: he who has the gold makes the rules, is not necessarily a good thing for the masses. Yeah, I agree with that. I also think, actually, maybe if we can end on a story that I think is actually pretty cool, and I'm going to give props to Coinbase for doing this. They just rolled something out where, first of all, they're funding a a lawsuit against the SEC, right, on behalf of Tornado Cash, which is awesome. Code is, I, I'm not, 
yeah, I just think I'm completely on that. If you are, if you write open source code, you should not be liable for. I, it's, I just it's, think it's crazy. Look, if, if you're not terrified by that, you're not paying attention. I agree with I mean, that. Totally. Literally, agree. literally, when I read that, I mean, I I had a little cold shudder. I mean, that is that is terrifying. Yeah. That you can create something that can be used by someone else. Yeah. And you're liable. I mean, so basically we're going to put every, are we going to start putting gun manufacturers in jail? I mean, I, I don't, I don't think that's the way it works. I mean, are you going to put knife manufacturers in jail? Are you going to put, like if, if someone accidentally overdoses on aspirin, I mean, are you going to put the aspirin company in jail? No, I, it, no, but personal responsibility. So I, 1000%. A hundred and and I thought that was a principle that had been well established in the internet, but I guess not. But they all the, the other thing that they did was they rolled this thing out, this uh, this new feature where you can see. So they've integrated it right into their platform. You can actually see what legislatures in your state think, what their sentiment is on the issue of crypto. So what they've kind of done is compiled sentiments. They basically so. This is in, in Brian's tweet here. For instance, U.S. users can see crypto sentiment scores from members of Congress based on publicly available statements they've made, register to vote, and find out more about local town hall events. Over time, we want to help pro-crypto candidates solicit donations from the crypto community in crypto. We'll also expand to get more geographic coverage in global elections and add data on various candidates running for office, not just current elected officials. So cool. First of all, young people, should, I'm speaking to myself here because I'm always... We need to get more involved. And I have no idea who yeah, the local party and who's running. So I think it's a very cool initiative from Coinbase writ large. But I think it's also a realistic call to action, which is if you want change, this is the light, this is how change gets enacted in America. I don't think that has to be some you gotta you've gotta engage. We have the ability to engage in public discourse. It actually matters if you remember a year ago or so, right? We lit up the phones of uh, you know, representatives. I can't even remember yeah. what that one was about. There was some. It was one of the you know the first four iterations of a bill that was going to get make it was making its way through Congress. So this is how you engage. If you want to see change in your own backyard, be the man in the mirror or whatever. Hundred percent. Fifty-one percent of people didn't vote in the last presidential election. Mm-hmm. It's insane. Oh, I didn't like the candidates. Not that's not the point. You have to be part of the solution. Can't be part of the problem, gotta be part of the solution. And and to your point, beyond the pres- president, who mostly, most, mostly figurehead and spokesmodel, it's Congress makes all the laws. 100% Congress makes the laws. And so, so many people, literally, uh, I like that name, it sounds like somebody I would like. Or, oh, someone told me, oh, I saw that guy's sign. But do you know anything about them or any? And being an informed citizen is one should be a responsibility, right? It's a privilege. One, um, you know, think about around the world where people are, you know, dodging bullets to go to the polls, and and we just complain that there's nobody good to vote for. There are plenty of good people to vote for. And we should, we should do people- something on this show to encourage people to do this. I, I'm thinking out loud here. I'm getting myself in trouble, but love it. we should. No, I love it. If you if you're listening to this show, you go onto Coinbase, figure out what your lo- local politician thinks about crypto. They've got negative sentiment. Give them a call. Shoot them an email. And Mark, yeah. maybe you and I can brainstorm offline. Maybe we can do something. Uh, you know, for I, li- I know. I, I I I think that's a great idea. And we're coming up, right? We got we got a couple months uh, yeah. before the the big day. And you know, I was down at. Um, yeah, it was Bitcoin Miami. And Suarez got up and, you know, of course, Suarez is talking his book, but he he said, I believe in the 2024 election, you will have two pro-Bitcoin candidates running for president. And of course, he was trying to think that he was going to be one of them, which <laughs> no, maybe, maybe, um, maybe. Maybe, 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 maybe. I mean, he's he's an impressive he's an impressive person in person, right? I mean, he speaks well. He looks good. I mean, he he fits the suit. You know, Johnny Johnny uh, Bravo, uh, 
but I, money, that's the conversation of the day. He, he, he does fit the suit. But I think his point was well taken, which is exactly the point you're making, which is know how someone stands on something that's really, really important. And crypto broadly, digital assets broadly is really important. Like it, it's it's not just whether the price of Bitcoin goes up or Ethereum goes down or up. It's it's what we talk about all the time in the bigger picture. It's the greatest macro trade ever seen. Yeah. DTAP and others have, have talked about it. It is the greatest macro trade. Why? Well, because we're fundamentally shifting how value is transacted. Yeah. You know, it's I have not another... the days of the kings having all the value and determining no. who gets it. It's not the days of you know paper and and you know meeting at the buttonwood tree and exchanging stuff. It is literally, I mean, it, it, I, I love this part. A blockchain is a layer up from a nation state. That's an amazing thing, right? We can have a global community society that operates. In the metaverse, right? That is a version of the metaverse, not necessarily the, the VR goggles, but that is a, a level of metaverse. And how we transact value of all kinds in that space is foundational to a successful and bright future. Let me give another, I, I think there's a decent chance that this narrative emerges for Bitcoin. So. Bitcoin digital gold, it, the inflation hedge narrative for Bitcoin right now is going is going through the ringer, and I actually I think that's a little bit unfair. And actually, if totally you look unfair. at if you look at how gold performed in the '70s when there were extremely negative real rates, at the time when negative real rates were their highest, gold actually did very poorly because the narrative was market is forward looking and they can't get any more negative than they are right now, which yep. is funny. So it, it just because it doesn't isn't performing exactly like you'd like it at the at the current time doesn't mean it's not an inflation hedge. I don't think. But the, the consensus is that's no longer the case. I think there's a pretty good chance that Bitcoin emerges. The narrative that drives it is it's this Bitcoin becomes less about the technology and more about the political movement. And it becomes this like, to use Balaji's word, like a flag that people wave to say, hey, I am pro freedom. I am anti-censorship. I am basically kind of have describes this political ideology more so than anything else. Yeah. And I, I do think. Some politicians, probably Francis Suarez, has figured out that it's a really good way to mobilize a base of people and get them under this shared Amen. banner, Amen. this shared thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and unless that, you know, because Balaji kind of came out with this idea, I do want to say, I, it is my pinned tweet, uh, you know, from February of this year, talking about exactly this thing where censorship, not inflation, might be the driving narrative for Bitcoin going forward. Because let's, let, let's say this, right? Remember when... There was a lot of pressure on Spotify to deplatform Joe Rogan. Hey, I don't like, you know, he said XYZ thing about vaccination. Mm -hmm. Spotify, you should get rid of him. Yep. Spotify is going to make a business decision. And they're going to say, I am either, you know, I'm either going to honor this relationship that I have with Joe Rogan. I want to keep the customers that he brings. And then, you know, the the decrease of that, uh, the, the other side of the ledger is I'm going to lose some customers who disagree yeah. with Joe Rogan or whatever he said about vaccination. So let's say they make the political the calculus to keep Joe Rogan. They're going to lose some subset of their customers. The e one of the easiest ways I feel like that. How, how big is the overlap between Joe Rogan and people who own Bitcoin? Joe Rogan's audience and people who own Bitcoin probably enormous. So enormous. if I'm in, if I'm in Spotify's seat, the easiest way, lowest lift way that I can think to make up that lost revenue, hey, you can pay for Spotify and Bitcoin because it ah. signals it signals to a group of people their existing customer base. Hey, I'm with you. You know, it, I just think I, so I think that other, I think that other companies will figure that out. And I think it will become brilliant, more about brilliant. this anti-censorship yeah. political flag. No, uh, it, than a it, if, if nothing else, I mean, it's a brilliant analysis. Uh, if, if nothing else, if we can replace the fervor and enthusiasm of the youth movement, uh, and I don't, I don't use the term youth derogatorily. I mean, no, I know. I'm, yeah. I'm just old. And then I, I, I think the youth movement is, I like being old. Don't, don't, don't get me wrong. It, it beats the alternative, but, uh, the youth movement, when it was going towards socialism, 
bad, just bad. And it's, and it's happened over and over and over in history, right? Over and over and over, the lure of socialism, collectivism, bad. This is better. Move to anti-censorship, anti-authoritarianism, freedom, maximization. Of, and now, social safety net, taking care of the, the impoverished, making 100%. sure that, that the people who don't have, have. Yes, 100%. But collectivism and socialism and, and the Bernies, no, 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 no. What you describe is the way to go. Let's move there. Awesome. All right, Mark, that's all the time we have this morning. I will see you here same time next week, my friend. All right. Cheers. Have a good one. Bye.